Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Hello, welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is Christine from Nourish the Littles and Corey from... Hi guys. (laughs) For nutrients sake. Um, And today we are excited because we have a really interesting interview with Dr. Bill and Christina Schindler. And so I'm going to begin by introducing Christina Schindler, who is Dr. Bill's wife. And Christina used to be a public educator. She was in education for 20 years as a teacher and administrator. And then she embarked on a business venture with her family as the CEO of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is a foodery in Chestertown, Maryland. The Modern Stone Age Kitchen optimizes nutrition in modern foods through ancestral techniques to create healthy food for the community. She also serves as the president of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, a nonprofit that is focused on creating a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system through education, outreach, and research. But most importantly, Christina is a mother of three busy teenagers and Dr. Bill Schindler's high-tech other half. And Dr. Bill Schindler is the author of Eat Like a Human and is an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef. He founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab with a mission to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches to create a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system. As we already mentioned, he and his wife, Christina, operate the Modern Stone Age Kitchen together. He also co-starred in the National Geographic Channel series, The Great Human Race. So let's welcome Dr. Bill and Christina Schindler. Okay, welcome back. This is episode number seven, and we are excited today because we are interviewing Dr. Bill and Christina from the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. I'm really excited about this. I just finished, um, well, I started out reading your book and then I got the audio because I realized I didn't have a lot of reading time. (laughs) So then I I listened to the audio too. Um, But I have the book for the recipes specifically and I made um, pretzels the other day. They're super good. Awesome. Yeah, they're really great. I was really (laughs) pleased. (laughs) They're actually one of our biggest, biggest items here that we sell at the Modern Sunday's Kitchen. Everybody loves our pretzels and the homemade mustard. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I need some of that mustard next. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, you need to come and visit. You definitely need to come and visit. That's on my list for sure. All right. So, um, Christine, you want to start us off with our yeah. intro question? So we like to start each episode with a quick question from... Uh, the hosts and any guests that we have. And it's usually related to the subject of the episode. 
And so today, if we wanted to ask each of you, what is the strangest location you have traveled to? And did you eat anything weird when you were there? Or what was the weirdest thing that you ate? And I know that I know that you guys are going to have a really good answer to this, which is why we decided to ask this question. You want to go first? Yeah, there's a couple of things we could probably uh, pull from on that one. So strange in the context of why we were there. So we've been to a lot of very unique places mm. from Thailand, eating bugs, I mean, just up in the mountains of different places. But believe it or not, I'd have to say in Italy, because we essentially through ancestors.com, like cold called a cousin of his in Italy. And we ended up going there and meeting them and they owned a bakery and like, and they spoke no English, no English, knowing us on the like, top of a mountain. In at all. Yeah. And so we happened to be in Italy for another trip and we're like, let's go see him. Like, come on. Like it's his grandmother's. It was your grandmother's uncles, whatever it was like, you know, a couple of removed, but we literally cold called these relatives, met them. They own a bakery. And this is before we had launched kind of our food business, but we were in the midst of doing all the research for the book and Carlos D'Amato, we meet them. Of course, like they, they brought you and our son, whisked them off to a bar, left me and the girls in the house, like to cook dinner. It was really interesting. None of us spoke English. Google translate, thank God, you know, was our best wow. friend. And meanwhile, they took us, me outside. And I remember texting you because we turned the corner outside. I was like, oh my gosh, they had a wood fired oven, just like we had at home. And it's that so funny, like that thing, nature or nurture, right? So here's actually a relative of his who has a wood fired oven, just like we have in the backyard. You guys stroll in from the bar and they like bond. Then Carlos tells him that he makes cheese. What are the chances? We're in Italy and this guy makes cheese too and mm. takes us. So this ties into the other part of your question, the strangest thing yeah. that we've eaten while away. He made Kasu Martsu. Kasu Martsu, the world's most dangerous cheese. Oh, oh I don't know about this. Yeah, oh, you're going to have to tell us this? about it. You give the description. Well, this, this, they lived in this village on the top of a mountain in Campania, and it was right on the coast, and you could see Sardinia. And traditionally, this cheese is made in Sardinia. And once the cheese is made, they let maggots get into it. And the maggots actually eat through the cheese and it goes through their digestive tract and comes out the other end changed in a positive way, if you like that kind of cheese. <laughs> and then eventually the, 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 the maggots, I don't know what kind of maggots or grubs that they are, but they end up you know, turning into moths and flying away. And then when you know it's at that stage, it's all been changed, but there's no bugs in there because they've all sprouted wings and flown away. But at this stage, he had it and they were all crawling with bugs. And I was so excited and we it pulled was. it out and I'm holding the cheese and they're crawling. The bugs are crawling on my arm. So and we gross. made the kids all eat slices of this cheese. And <laughs> yeah, the world's most dangerous cheese, they call it. It but was then actually pretty They good. had a bakery and then we went downstairs and had amazing Italian pastries. That, so that's really what the kids remember um, out of that experience. But by far, you know, in kind of a, you know, a place that people do visit traditionally, but definitely very unique for us as a family. Yeah. It, it wow. is crazy that for all the places we've been, that was one of the strangest, you know, strangest. Meetings. Wait, so you're saying that the maggots eat the <laughs> cheese and then they digest it. And oh, OK. But so you're in the process the of them. Yeah. Is it like bees or, or sorry, honey? Is it like honey? No. In a way, no, you know like, how like honey <laughs> is made by the. No. Is it like that cat poop coffee? Do you know what I'm no, about? no, no. We have weasel poop coffee. Yeah, we've had the we, we've had the we've, we've had, had that. Poop. No, this is 
now not all the cheese is eaten, but it is in the center. So it is. It's softer, and it's 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 really di- it's been through their digestive tracts. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wait, but for real, they're pooping it, and that's what you're consuming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whoa. Unless you're mean parents like us and make the kids make actually eat the bugs themselves. But oh my god, isn't there isn't there a French cheese that is that is yeah, maggots? More, more like you're actually eating maggots or something? I don't know. Same thing. It's after the maggots have have left, and then okay. we were at it with a cheesemaker in Germany. Remember Helmut Milben case? Milben case. Yes, with mite cheese. It's, it's little mites. It's a mites eat the cheese. Wow. There's only one person in the world that still makes this cheese. We went to visit. His name's Helmet. Yeah, his name was Helmet, and he uh, he was a biology teacher in this little village in Germany, and he realized that there was only one person still alive that knew how to. Or he's a chemistry teacher that knew how to make this very traditional cheese. It, it's very very traditional. So he learned from this woman how to make this cheese, and he now has a little tiny museum in like his house. It's in Milton case. It's in Milton case. So, yeah, Milton and then case, but when you eat this cheese, the maggots are. Or I'm sorry, the, the mites are literally crawling over your hand when you eat this. So with the kids, we were looking oh at it underneath the microscope and then asked them to wow. eat it. And then the funniest thing they thought was he served it with non-alcoholic beer for them because he said again. <laughs> translate the only way you could eat it was with beer (laughs) (laughs) on a slice of rye bread i would love to know the first humans that figured out if i let (laughs) bugs chew on this cheese it's going to make it more delicious like how did that happen you know there were a couple about six years ago the, the local news came and was doing a piece on something and they asked me they said what is the strangest food you've ever eaten and I looked them dead in the eye and I said, McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> and, I, I mean, and, and I actually mean it. The <laughs> amount of craziness that goes on in there compared to, and I know it's crazy with the bugs and the eating the cheese and all that. But what happens inside of the walls at McDonald's is a lot crazier than, than that, if you really think about it. Yes. That is a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So usually we, we bang this off of each other too. So Christine, do you have an answer to what's the strangest? I mean, there's thing? no way I can do that. <laughs> Come nothing on. I, nothing I say is going to be as cool. Um, okay. So I thought about this cause I've, I haven't traveled as much as you guys, but, um, I did do a missionary trip in Africa a few years ago. Um, and I was in Sierra Leone and we were in a tiny little village, very remote, and we had to eat whatever was offered to us. And this was before I was eating organ meats. And so I watched while they, um, you know, slaughtered the goat because that's what there was. And then uh, she basically made a stew out of all of the parts of the goat. And I had no idea what it was that I was eating. Um, so I probably ate a lot of organ meats that I wouldn't normally eat in there, even ones that I don't have access to here Um I haven't been able to find yet in the States, like tripe or, um, I don't know, longer, you know, like really weird ones like that. Um, but what was super bizarre was they would take a special type of fish oil, um, from like a dried fish. I can't remember the name of it. And they would cook all of the goat meat in that fish oil. So it was mm. such a bizarre flavor profile where it was, you're eating goat meat, but it's cooked in a fish oil. Um, it was very, <laughs> For me, it was the strangest thing I had eaten up at, up until that point. And I was pregnant at the time and very nauseous. So that did okay. not work. <laughs> but yeah, that's my story. Okay. So I have not been anywhere half as cool as any of these places. Uh, I've been to like 
Europe, and Canada. So, <laughs> um, but in, when I was in France, I did this study abroad program in France and, um, I ordered this ham and cheese sandwich at the local, um, place, sandwich shop, whatever. And, and I get like halfway through eating it. And I realized that the pork was raw and, and I was in college and I was like super freaked out. By I, I mean, I look back on it now. I'm like, it probably it was probably fine, but like, it really weirded me out at the time. So <laughs> that's it. That's, that's my super weird story. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? You've had some very unique experiences that I haven't been a part of. You know, when we were filming the great human race, the first place we went, was in Tanzania to film the first episode. We were replicating two and a half million year old time period. And when we would go and film each place we were in, we were there for several weeks and it would take a, you know, we'd get there and then we'd spend one of the parts I love is we'd spend several days with a, a native or traditional group and live with them. And they'd teach us wild plants and, you know, how to, what animals to stay away from and how to not get bit by the, you know, black mamba snakes and these sorts of things. So it was the first night we were there. We were in the middle of nowhere in Tanzania. We were probably a eight hour drive from the nearest town uh, through dirt roads. And it was just us. And we were with some Hadza. They were, um, you know, it's the oldest living hunter gatherer group in the world. And they'd never seen a headlamp before. And we had a headlamp. We weren't filming us. We weren't doing like, we weren't like doing the, the, the full thing. We were actually camping at this point. And we're out in the middle of nowhere. We had a headlamp on. We're sitting by a fire and and the, the people who were with us, they were like in their late teens, early 20s. And they were so excited about the lamp. And we had a translator. And they said, listen, we're going to go get some water. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And they said, we'll be back shortly. And they asked if they could borrow a headlamp. So we gave them a headlamp. So that was the only light we had. So they take off. And these hunter gatherers take off. And they're all dressed in baboon skins. And you know, it was awesome. And then we're sitting there in the dark without anybody, you know, we're just by ourselves looking at this fire and listening. I mean, we could hear hyenas and everything. There was no fences. There was nothing except for us. And they were gone for hours, probably three or four hours. And they came back so happy. And they had over their shoulder a genet cat that they had shot with their bow out of a tree. And they were so, it was the first time they ever hunted at night because it was the first time they had a headlamp. <laughs> they were so excited. They pulled, brought this cat down, which was probably about that big, you know, about, no, about that big. And they said, listen, we, we save the meat. Everybody eats the meat together, but we always eat the organs first. So they cut into, into that and they pulled out the liver. We, we ate all the organs right away. But um, at the time, I, you know, you're not supposed to eat carnivore livers. You know, the higher you go up on the food chain, the more toxic, they can, like a polar bear, I, you know. So the cat was a, a carnivore. It was fine though. We ate that. So eating the genet cat liver in the middle of Tanzania, in the middle of nowhere was, was kind of crazy. And it got shot out of a tree by a guy. First, first flashlight he ever saw was two hours earlier. Oh. Holy cow. <laughs> That's a really cool story. These are stories he didn't tell me until he came home safely. And then I'd be like, Oh yeah, by the way. That's really <laughs> smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh -huh. um, wow. Okay. So um, when we contacted you, um, Dr. Bill, we, we contacted you and invited you on here. And then the first thing you said was, well, can my wife come too? Which I thought was the sweetest thing ever. So <laughs> he, was, he, he, were like, 
she was really great. And she's, you know, the mom of this and, and we can talk about all the, this cool stuff together. And I was like, yes, absolutely. That's so sweet. (laughs) Um, So since we started with that, I would love it if you guys would tell the quick version of how you met. (laughs) That's all you. Okay. (laughs) In college, that's the quick version. In college, I remember sitting in history class. It was a, I'm sorry, a world history two class. And the professor asked the question, what is the oldest form of alcohol in the world? And this guy sitting right in the front middle, who was super cute, but he looked older. Like I couldn't figure out like how old he was, raised his hand. Mead was the answer. I was like, that's right, Mead. And I turned to my friend Liza. I was like, how old do you think he is? I'm like, I'm not sure. I think he's older. So fast forward, he claims that he was standing outside in the hallway and said hi to me when I came out of the classroom. I did not. I saw her and all I wanted to do was say hello yeah, to her. She I don't out. remember that at all. She but walked. I remember that night I was the new hostess at a restaurant in Princeton. He was the new bartender. And we met then. That she couldn't get away from me then. I, I, I literally, I saw her in class. I went out. I was the first one to pack, packed up and I went outside. I stood right by the door to see her when she came out. And I said, hey, and she walked right past me. Jump didn't even turn around. around. <laughs> and that night we both literally we started, started working at the same restaurant the same night. Yeah. So in a way, we've always been in food together. I guess now so. Now I think about it. Yeah. I used to just feed her underage drinks. That's oh, true. Mm. Okay, maybe we should edit that one out. <laughs> There's a statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, that was quite some time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> no, we all, we, we've always been around food at some level, and it's always been important to us. But we've learned a ton since then. Yes, we have. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, Christina. Yes. Um, <laughs> When you started working in this restaurant and there's this cute guy there, did you ever expect that you would be traveling around the world with him and drinking these um, raw milk and raw blood smoothies, milkshake things? No. Well, for multiple reasons. So let's just put it all out there. One, because I was a vegetarian. So no. (laughs) Whatever of that have happened. And the other main reason is because he was engaged. So yes, that wouldn't have happened either. So (laughs) reasons that never, ever crossed my mind. But look, we're here now. Blood milk and all. And now I eat meat. So Okay, so can we can you tell us the story of the um, of the raw milk and raw blood uh, milkshakes? Yeah, so this one was he's always wanted to do it. And especially he wanted to do it for the book. And it was really important to have that research in there. And this is, again, one of those crazy small world, literally things. He takes, we're living in Ireland. Um, he's on a sabbatical. He's a visiting professor at UCD. So this is 2017-18. Uh, so we're in Ireland. He takes a cheese making course in Iceland, as you do. So he goes to Iceland, leaves me with the kids in Ireland, and takes a cheese making course. He co- had a great time, comes back and tells me about this family that he met from Kenya, again, as you do in Iceland who they own the largest cheese making company in Kenya. And they invited us to come visit them. Okay. So then fast forward. They also run a a white rhino preserve. A white rhino preserve as well. So then he is asked to do a (laughs) keynote in South Africa um, at at an archeology span conference in March. So he's like, hey, why don't I give Delia a call? Now this is South Africa. And they are in Kenya. She invited us to Kenya. Maybe we can just stop by. 
<laughs> on our way from Ireland. Again, as you do with three kids. So he calls Delia. Next thing I know, he's like arranged this trip with this woman who I don't know. And we're going to go stay in her house. This is so crazy. And Wait, then how old are the kids at this point? So our kids would, uh, this year, it was their eighth, sixth, and fourth grade year. So they're like, they're good travelers. You okay. know what I mean? Like at okay. that point, yeah. we're not dealing with diapers and all that type of thing. So they're self-sufficient little travelers. But still, like now they're at the awkward stage of like having to make friends when we go to these places and you can't blame it on them being four and shy. So it's like, come on, kids. But um, so yeah, we literally flew from Ireland down to South Africa. You did your keynote. Then we flew to Kenya, never met these people. We did everything online. And this was before really like Zoom was very big too. So it was all kind of like, uh, I don't even know, phone calls. Yeah, like WhatsApp phone calls. And Delia had planned this whole thing because she wanted to go as well. And then we got to Kenya and then we took this little plane that ended up a year later crashing into the side of Mount Kenya. Oh my gosh. That we were on and like everybody died. Um, Yeah, I mean, just crazy stuff. And then he told me that we were going to do blood and milk and we told the kids, you know, just just get ready. And I didn't, I didn't realize we actually, I mean, I guess I knew we were, but until you're there and you're in the moment and you, we just literally were traveling through this lager, a wadi, which is a dried riverbed. So literally we're in these land rovers and the kids are sitting on top of land rovers and we're driving through this riverbed. And as we pull around this corner, I mean, there's nothing there, like nothing at all with these people we just met. And they're absolutely wonderful, wonderful, um, dear friends of ours now. And then there's these men that just come out of the grasses and they're immaculate and just um, so colorful with all the beads and the skins and everything that they're wearing. And then one of my favorite things is when they pull their cell phone out of the pocket. (laughs) We were days, days from the nearest town. I mean, we had taken a plane. We drove till the roads ran out, camped. Drove to the paths, ran out onto a a dried riverbed and had to drive up a dried riverbed for hours and finally got to a group that had been untouched enough that they were still very, very traditional in the way they they did this. And we we get out of the cars and they're standing there. It looked like a Disney movie, like they're backlit and they just look, they're Sombrero warriors. I mean, they just perfect. And they kind of motion for us to follow. So we climb up out of the riverbank, you know, get out of the riverbank. We're following them. I'm like, I don't know if to be scared or so excited. I don't, I don't even know. We're walking. And then literally one of them pulls out a cell phone. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and they worked. And well, they did. Well, they, their cell phone works differently over there. Okay. And, and yeah, the way that the, the way that they're charged and the way that you put money on and all this, but the, the funny thing is there's, they have no way to charge the cell phones. So we had actually, um, so they'll go and when they're somewhere they can charge it, they charge it and do nothing but, you know, text and WhatsApp and on, 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 on. And then, and then literally there's nothing for three or four weeks until they get to a place to charge it again. But yeah. But then as we followed them in and then, you know, the women and children were kind of in one area and then the cows were in another. And then we had our translator and we actually, we had an armed guard with us too. Jimmy, who we talk to all the time on WhatsApp. He was inside. Um, and then they kind of got the cow over and went through the whole process. And truthfully, our youngest, Alyssa, so she was fourth grade at the time. So just probably nine. Um, she is an animal lover and could not watch it at all. So we had a She deep, thought they were killing the yeah, cow. Yeah, she didn't understand that the cow could bleed and that they could do a compression. And it literally just ran off. And that was really 
um, surprising to me too, because I had no idea that, that that was something that could occur when you're sitting there faced with a gourd and it was a uh, very unique odor of the gourd itself. And then with fresh blood and milk and they stirred it. And when they stirred it, it almost like they made a lollipop out of the it coagulated around the stick. Yeah. And then they gave that to the dog. So the dog had that part and then we had it and it, and then they poured it into a, a little um, gourd, half gourd, so you could really see it. So I actually love looking back at our videos because I mean, it's it's red. It's a it's a very um, strong strawberry milkshake. Very very <laughs> strawberry quick, like that artificial yeah. Yeah, yeah. color. Yeah, um, but it, in a weird way, it actually it tasted good. It was it's kind of like you know if you cut yourself and you suck the blood, right? It was that that. Irony kind yeah, of. Yeah, that iron flavor that you get in your mouth, but it was the thickness of of milk. And all the kids tried it. and they, Except for Alyssa. Except for Alyssa. Um, and they all did really well, but it was very strange. You know, flies literally were swarming you as you're trying to drink it, but you're amongst their culture and this is what they sustained them. So how could you not? And how could you not be um, disrespectful of the entire process? So... And it was interesting, you know, they're of the culture where you don't take pictures because if you take a picture, it captures the soul. Mm. So a lot of the the men were fine with it. The men yeah. who had cell phones, they clearly were kind of of a different um, generation, I guess. But um, a lot of the women that were back with children in the huts, you know, they didn't want any of the modern type thing at all. So it was interesting to kind of see that juxtaposition a little bit. But mm-hmm. we learned a lot. It was definitely humbling. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Wow. Would but you, never would have thought I would be ever doing that and how we got there. But she brings up a really important point that, and, and we, we think about this all the time when we're, when we're developing classes or, 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 or speaking or whatever, that context is so important. You know, if I put that same gourd in on an American dinner table, like they'd throw me out of a house, almost every house in the country, but in the context with, you know, in the midst of all the culture, in the midst of all the smells and the sounds and the everything, it's a completely different experience. So I, I think when we're talking about trying to get kids to eat something or trying to have a discussion about food or trying to teach a new technique or have somebody try a new food, I think that context is a really, really important thing. It, it definitely was for our family everywhere that we went. I think Christine having that lamb stew when you didn't know what it was either, if that was at your family's kitchen table, that would have been different too. Yeah. 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 That's such a good point. Um, so you, you kind of feel like a modern Weston A. Price to us. Um, with all of, <laughs> all of these travels. That a huge compliment. Um, no, I mean, it's so cool. Uh, and the doctorate in archeology span that you have, um, what inspired you to start researching all of these food traditions? What was the impetus? My family to be honest. Um, we, we tell this, this story, I'm sure it's changed a bit over time, but, 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 but the root of it is, and if you've heard me speak another podcast, you might've heard some version of it, but you know, my, this is, let me get an example word. You know, this, this kind of thing is what I've spent years of my life learning how to make, like making stone tools, making, making mm. pots, replicating ancient technologies to learn how they were made and used oh, in the past. Show and tell us while we're here. Sure, so 
unfortunately, to, to learn how to make something like this, it not only takes years. It takes but, a lot of time <laughs> to make something like this. You know, truckloads you know? worth of rock. And, and, and I it was committed to practicing it no matter what was going on, how many kids we had, no matter what we were working on and working all this. I was committed to every day I practice at least an hour um, learning how to replicate these stone tools. And this was going on for years. And, you know, the, Christina came out when I was in the garage banging on rocks. I know it sounds silly, but I was banging on rocks. Because you can't do it in the house because the The silica can mess so up your lungs. So it's actually dangerous. So you have to be outside. So I'm outside doing it. And she came out. She said, listen, come in the house. And I said, I'll be right there. She's like, no, no, no. Can you just bring all this passion, all this, what you're doing. Can you bring it into the house and make it, you know, something that helps her family in some way? Like, I get it's interesting. I get you teach about it. But, and I came and I was like, yeah, she's right. If I'm going to spend all this time, um, you know, dedicating myself to something, why is it going to be just learning how to make a rock so I can tell students the next day how to make this kind of tool? And I thought about it. I thought about it for a very long time. Uh, about a week. <laughs> and, and then it hit me in the shower where all the best ideas come from one day. And I realized that, you know, it, it was one of those moments where everything sort of just floods in and makes sense at the same time. It's one of those rare moments when everything makes sense. But, you know, I've always been interested in, in, in diet and health and nutrition. I've always been interested in cooking. I've always been battling weight and health my entire life from a dietary perspective. Nothing is more important to me than nourishing my, and loving my family. And then there's all this stone tools and archaeology and all this. And I realized that just about every single prehistoric technology is focused on food, either getting food or processing food or um, you know, sharing food or distributing food, whatever. Like it's almost all of it. And if you think and that, that became incredibly powerful to me, if you think about it, all the all the Albert Einsteins. For three and a half million years worth of time that we we and our ancestors have been on this planet, the best minds of our species and our ancestors' species were developing technologies to do something with food, then it must be really important. And it must have made an impact on us as we went through different evolutionary processes and eventually cre helped create us and nourish us as humans. So when I realized that, the, you know, the entirety of everything that we've talked about in that book really started that day. And I realized that you know, I can put all this together and find ways to cook and nourish my family like I've never before imagined. So that was really what started it. Wow, that's really cool. And that's, that's such a great answer. We want to pause for a moment to talk about one of our favorite podcasts, the Wise Traditions podcast is about food, farming, and the healing arts. Basically, it's about how to cultivate health through ancestral wisdom backed by modern science. We've learned so much from this podcast and the foundation that puts it out. As modern ancestral mamas, we don't always have time to read in-depth scientific studies, but we do have 30 minutes while we're washing dishes or sitting in the school car line. The topics the show covers are broad, everything from what to eat when you're expecting to how sunlight nourishes the body, to how to keep children grounded in these turbulent times. Give a listen wherever you get your podcasts and or download the Wise Traditions podcast app from your app store. So talk a little bit about the ways that your travels have influenced your knowledge of food and your current lifestyle. Hmm. What do you think? Um... 
Well, I think our travels have definitely opened us up to the idea of, of trying everything and really appreciating culture and how culture impacts food and flavor and spice or lack thereof. Um, and the time that it takes to prepare. I think our kids really value then eating something that's traditional. Um, and also then mm. we're reflective on our own American diet is, well, what are people excited about coming to America to eat? It's like, yeah, guys, what what is American food? And what are you proud of to have somebody, you know, your friends now from other countries come to America to eat? Um, and that I think is, you know, is interesting. But um, I think we when we do travel, it's seeking out the local place. That's always been our thing too, mm. is being as local as possible. And they've seen definitely the benefits of that and the quality of food that they've been able to enjoy. And also the cost of food, how different that has been in travels. I mean, I think one of our best meals ever was on the side of a road in Bangkok when he, we had fresh pad thai. I think we fed our entire family of five for like four US dollars. It was fantastic. Mm, stuffed. I mean, we were absolutely stuffed. Full. And that, that's been a big one for us as a family. Like traveling you can do it in a really cost-effective way. You know, we traveled six weeks in Europe as a family of five for less than it costs to go as a family of five to Disney. Like, you know, like it's so, and I mean, I know the world is different now, clearly in many ways than when we may have done that five, six years ago. But um, that I think has opened up the kids' eyes to really almost like, a financial side of, of travel and food and what you're able to get when you can be a little more um, fiscally responsible with your money and stretch your dollars further too. And I would say from a food sense, you know, it's, it has been great to, uh, on one end, a very, very, very good thing to see the, the role of wild foods, the role of nose to tail approaches to animals, the traditional groups that we've have spent, have been with. It's just, it's, it's kind of like, you know, how Weston Price everywhere he went, even though they had different resources, they fulfilled these, you know, different needs and these same basic needs in different ways. It's the same sort of thing. Everybody we've been with eats when they kill an animal, they eat the entire thing. Everybody, you know, at the, at the core of just about every single um, traditional cuisine, we've been actually every single one, there's some level of fermentation happening wild resources, those sorts of things are, 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 you know, all of that is ubiquitous. Now that's been great. And we've taken a lot of that back and, and obviously translated that into our own cooking and certainly what we do here at the modern stone age kitchen. But on a negative sense, one of the things that we've seen is, and Christine even mentioned it with the cell phones, no matter how far we travel, no matter how difficult it is to get there, no matter how isolated a group is, there is always some level of modern western nonsense that has made its way in and it's really unfortunate and i'll tell you we 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 like to um to say you know coca-cola's everywhere and they are but you know who i i have never been anywhere that i couldn't and i, I don't eat them anymore but i that i couldn't get a snickers bar if i wanted it snickers is everywhere i think snickers is in more places than coke and pepsi to be honest hmm that's definitely not something to be proud of. No, no, it's not. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it is, I, I spent a lot of time trying to get in the Altiplano of Bolivia. Up, we we're really up by Lake Titicaca to learn how to detoxify potatoes. And it was really difficult to get to this group. And on the way out of um, uh, 
the capital of Bolivia. Help me. Ah, It'll come to me. Uh, keep going. And the, and the way out of the main city, I, gosh, I can't believe I forget the name of it. We, we stopped at this little roadside almost shop, and the person who was kind of the guide said, listen, you have to buy the two two liters of Fanta, wasn't it? it must, some kind of Fanta or something, and this nasty bread that I would never serve my family. And I, and I said, there's no way. I said, I cannot live with going to learn about traditional food processing and then bringing this family this. Like, it just goes against everything that I believe. And they said, listen, you have to. This is what they asked for. And I said, I, I, I don't think I can do it. So, but, but, but I did because this is what they asked for. And I brought it and I gave it to them. I really, I still to this day have a hard time with it. But I did actually find out later on it saved my life. Literally. Um, literally. So I lived with this family for a while. We, we, we did all sorts of potato. It was, oh, the family's amazing. Amazing. And, they, and we were up at like 16,000 feet. It was, it was amazing. And then um, it was La Paz. That's where it La came Paz. out of La Paz. And then went down to uh, Peru to do the same thing with a, a Quechua family. And then went to the International Potato Institute. Who, believe it or not, there's this place, the International Potato Institute in Lima, which is the storehouse of all the potato varieties in the world. And they do amazing research. It's, it's a great facility. And I gave a presentation there. And then at the end, we were eating lunch. I mean, this is like armed guards level. I mean, all the potatoes in the world the seed stock for them were in this location and we're sitting there in the cafeteria and the guy that helped me set it up he's like yeah you're lucky you made it out I'm like look you made it out of where he's like oh when you were in bolivia he's like you're lucky you know we were constantly monitoring what was going on and making sure you were okay and i said what are you talking about he says we know about the fat sucker and i said the fat sucker what do you mean the fat sucker there's it, it it's called believe it or not it sounds like fish taco but it's spelled it's, it's like fish taco something is a is a myth that is commonly believed of this of a, um, a usually it's a, a white male that comes into the village and um, s sucks people's fat at night and eventually kills people while they're sleeping through this and the only and it's a big, there's a lot of myths and mythology surrounding it. It has to do a lot with fat. It has a lot to do with reciprocity, a lot of different things. But he said, the one thing that saved me, and people have been, I mean, there've been anthropologists who have been run out. There was a, a hanging like within the past 20 years of somebody that they, that they accused of this kind of witchcraft like thing. But it turns out the thing that actually saved me was bringing the two, two liters of soda and the junky bread. Because and it was this again this idea of reciprocity and it's a much longer story than that but it is very interesting I don't even know how we got there I'm sorry <laughs> but we're traveling as but I, I lived through it wow <laughs> I know right yeah that was so interesting um so I actually think that this is going to be a much longer response and possibly for a second episode but we wanted to touch a little bit today on basically what you've learned through your archaeology degree and your travels about how humans ate ancestrally. And mm. if we can focus a little bit on, um, again, this idea of eating the whole animal, how foods were properly prepared, how people ate seasonally, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about that. Yep, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll do, I'll do a short version for you and then we can expand on anything you like. The, the short version is we started as soon as we could walk upright our diets consisted of 
very seasonal. I mean, remember, everything up until recent times was 100% gathered uh, by our own hands, our ancestors' own hands, right? So everything was wild. Everything was seasonal. Everything was not only local, but hyper-local. So all everything was obviously organic. So all those buzzwords that are, you know, we, we see in the grocery store and advertising right now, that was the default all the time. And when we could first stand upright about five to seven million years ago, our diets were focused on plants because we could gather them and insects. That was it. So we were frugivores, herbivores, and insectivores. And of those three things, the insects were the most nutrient dense and bioavailable. In fact, it was very little plant matter we could eat because we had no opportunity to process it at all and no way to detoxify it. So we could only eat plants that were as as um, safe as possible that could unlock their nutrients to our bodies easily. And there's not many that, that can do that. So our bodies were small. Our brains are very small. We've invented our first stone tool technology about almost three and a half million years ago. And we introduced meat through scavenging when we did that. And there wasn't much of a change in our bodies or our brain size when we introduced meat. I know a lot of people from the carnivore world, hate to hear this, but when we started eating meat, things changed. Our bodies grew a little bit, our brains grew a little bit, but it wasn't substantial. At 2 million years ago, we developed two technologies that transformed everything. One was fire and allowed us to cook our food, process our food, do all those sorts of things, and hunting technology. And the difference between hunting and scavenging is when we scavenge, when we scavenge meat from kills made by other animals, we only get to eat the stuff that's left. And when the predators kill an animal, they eat all the good stuff on the inside, the blood, the fat, and the organs. That's the most nourishing. It's the most nutrient dense. It's the most bioavailable. And it's the most satiating part of the animal. And they eat that first, then they go off and sleep. And if we can run in there with stone tools and hack off pieces of meat, we do it. When we hunt, we become the predators. We have first access to the entire animal and we now can eat the blood, the fat, and the organs. And when we have the opportunity to do that, our brains and our bodies jump in size to almost modern proportions. From that point forward, we just get better at all the things we're doing. We get better at fire technology and cooking technology, better at hunting, better at butchering. Um, we develop all sorts of technologies that allow us to make plants as safe as possible and unlock their nutrients, things like fermentation and nishtamalization and, and all those sorts of things. And everything's going really good. You know, our, our safety in our food is increasing. Our nutrient density is increasing. Our bioavailability is increasing. Our bodies are increasing in size. Our brains are increasing in size. And then the agriculture revolution hits and everything changes. We go from uh, an incredibly nourishing, safe diet that and it's incredibly diverse, right? It's got hundreds of different plants and dozens of different animals in it on a yearly basis to focusing on one or two key crops, you know, and, and it's always based around annual grasses. It's based around maize or rice or wheat or barley or rye or whatever. And um, everything starts to change and our nutrient density goes down, our nutrient bioavailability goes down, the safety in our food goes down. I mean, we're literally flooding ourselves with all the plant toxins that we, we know now know is in these plants. And we also are separated from our food in ways we never were before. Right. So one of the things that people, historians boast about with the agricultural revolution is all of a sudden it freed up segments of the population to become lawyers and doctors and artists and poets and all of these things, which all that's great. 
But the downside is all those people are getting disconnected from their food and where it comes from, the knowledge of their food, all of that. And then when the Industrial Revolution hits in the 1700s, it's even worse. We go from food producers, which we were as agriculturalists, to food consumers. And so much more of us have been taken away. That food chain gets incredibly long. And the processed food, processed food in the past was focused on making food as safe and nourishing as possible. And processed food today is focused on making people rich and at the expense of safety and, and the nourishment of the food. So that's a quick nutshell, but I can dive into anything you like <laughs> a little bit deeper. I think we're going to have to save that for another episode because okay. we have we have other other topics we want to talk about. So Corey, you want to you want to bring up the rest? Okay, so um, you guys have teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Christine and I have younger kids. My oldest is ten. Christine, your oldest is nine. Eight. Oh, eight. Okay. Um, So since you guys have a little more kid experience than we do, um, do your kids all still live at home? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Senior 10th grade and 8th grade. Okay. All right. Um, So if you guys, if we could like look back a little bit, what would you have done differently um, when they were little? And then on the flip side of that, like, what are you really glad that you did? Why don't you say what we do differently and I'll hit the... Okay. So contrary to probably what people think when they hear us talk now and and how we raise our kids and the food that we feed them as a family and the food that we make for the community, our kids were fed baby food. We did not make any baby food at all. Nothing at all. We were at a different point on our journey as a family Mm -hmm. where we were career-wise, where what we were hearing from the media... Um, we had Brianna, you were working on your dissertation. I was working on mine. Um, and we just were in, we just weren't in this space yet. We hadn't learned. We didn't know what we didn't know. And we were listening to what, you know, um, the media and the doctors were saying, and as long as it was, I know it's just earth's earth's best baby food. Well, then if it's earth's best, then it has to be best for your child as opposed to actually making it ourselves. So that's truthfully one of my biggest regrets as a parent is not understanding or taking the time. They're all fine. They've worked, you know, we're, we're good, but um, yeah. And they ate mac and cheese and they ate chicken nuggets. And when they were younger, when younger. Not, not yeah, I mean, recent. like, I just want to put it out there. It's not that we literally, you know, they've never had processed food and we've made everything from scratch the entire time. No, I have pictures of them sitting up on the counter. We had like the little Ikea, like extra bar stool thing on top and they would put their legs under eating their, you know, craft mac and cheese and dinosaur chicken nuggets. We didn't, we didn't know. We, did, we didn't know what we didn't know. And now, you know, we look back and, and it's funny. They even laugh about it. They're like, I can't believe you let us have Kraft Mac and Cheese. And they'll read the box. And, you know, that's part of the journey too, is them being receptive to understanding why we make decisions that we do and why we also just, we just don't buy it. I mean, that's half of it is you have control of what comes into your house as a parent. And there is that peer pressure when you're walking down the grocery store aisles, but don't bring the kids or and just don't buy it. And that's where we are right now. It just doesn't come in the house. I'll say, and, and it, it kills me to even hear this. It almost sounds like I'm listening to her talk about a different family because it is. It's exactly what we were doing. We were learning and we, and we, I love that this is the word everybody uses now. It's a journey because it is. Um, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been completely different. 
But I will say we did do a few things, right? I think uh, one, this was a time period when, when we had our oldest daughter, Brianna, was a time we were just starting to discover raw milk. And for me, it was a huge leap because everything that I read when I put in raw milk was that, you know, Dyfus was going to come take the kids away. I'm going to kill my family. Um, <laughs> but by giving them raw milk, it is something we did and never stepped away from. Our kids went milk wise, went directly from breast milk to raw milk their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And, and we lived in New Jersey and Maryland. So that meant we were driving to Pennsylvania, oh, wow. you know, yeah. every other week. I'm sure so many people can relate to that. Yeah. So that I'm very proud that we did that. And the other thing, and this isn't about food itself, but what's interesting about humans is being nourished is more than just meeting your biological requirements. It's also meeting your cultural and emotional ones. We always and continue to eat together. Always. Every night. As much as we can. can. It always was every night. And now they're a little bit older. One's got maybe lacrosse practice or something. But um, I'm very proud that we've done that. And the other thing I think that I'm proud of that we've done is it's not that we've said no to foods. We've said, how can we make it healthier? Mm. So whether it was, I will tell you, I'm a sucker for a frozen marshmallow peep. That was just like one of my favorites. <laughs> I just loved, no, I know, I know you love him still, but just there's something about a frozen peep. So yes, I have never, it has never occurred to me to freeze a peep. Easter's coming. coming. My dad (laughs) buys me peeps every year and I'm always like, dad, I hate these. (laughs) It would be a different story. You'll have to try it and think of me and then text me. But um, so we made marshmallows and that was a huge thing. Actually, the kids are known for it in elementary school. When it was a, a class party, he would make homemade marshmallows and would bring them in and the kids loved it. The one thing that we literally have not been able to make that will haunt you forever. And the kids will always bring it up. He tried to make candy canes and they just didn't work. That was a complete disaster. But, you know, everything else like that, we just try to make it from scratch and at home. And it's totally different than when they go through the process. If it's not a cake mix that's coming out, they're mixing everything. And truly the math skills that they learn from all that and the chemistry, Mm -hmm. there was so much. And truthfully, then they decide if they really want it. Because as opposed to just reaching into a pantry that has, you know, yo-yos or ho-hos or Oreos or whatever the heck they are in there, when it's going to take you an hour to get the cookies together and mix them and, you know, bake them off, then it's funny to see if it actually happens or not. Can I say one other thing? Of course. Can you talk about peeps? I've got got to recover from that. (laughs) 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 Um, um, The other thing that we've done and we've always done is we've, we've always butchered at home as well. As much oh, as we could. Oh, yeah. And I was a vegetarian. So that this was a huge leap. Yeah. But we'll like, we'll throw a half a pig on the counter. And that That's a big one. Like literally now on the island, a half a pig has come into the house numerous times. But before, I, the whole blood thing just always grossed me out. But Directly I from the like, farm? It, so like you would pick it up, it would, it would have been slaughtered at the farm and then you would bring it back and just, or would you butcher it in your, do you have land or... No, we don't have much land. We're in a neighborhood. We're in a neighborhood. Oh, okay. Um, well, well, we hunt, so anything like that, oh, okay. we bring home our own. But things like pigs, for example, we can get um, we, we get it at the butcher. We just we'll get a half a pig. It saves a ton of. We can get a half a pig for a hundred and sixty dollars. It'll feed us forever. It's right. so much cheaper, and we know the people that raise the pig. I mean, it's it, it, but but I like the fact that. You know, even if the kids are watching TV and it's happening in the background, mm-hmm. they still saw that there was a head and feet 
on something and there was skin and there was bones and you heard the knife against the bones. And I know that sounds strange, but it sounds and sights that we've always seen for millions of years that so many kids never have the opportunity to make that link between the chicken breast that they're eating and something that ran around, you know, mm -hmm. um, on a farm somewhere. So we did that right, I think, too. And the kids do it. That's the kids yeah. have been in the kitchen with us since the beginning. So they actually cook dinner quite often. Yeah. I mean, Brianna started this whole bread thing, too, during COVID. That's why oh. we're partially sitting here as well. So that's been nice to see the kids empowered by food. Wow. Yeah. My um, so it, it we've slowly over time, because like you said, this is a journey. Um, we, we don't start out where we are now. And um, so we've incorporated more organ meats and eating all of the animal. And now it's just kind of like normal where there's a tongue and my eight-year-old is helping me peel the beef tongue. And, <laughs> you know, he, he's still not a fan of it. He still doesn't really want to eat it, but he's like, oh yeah, this is a beef tongue and I'm just peeling it and like singing while he does it. And <laughs> I'm just thinking how many it's other eight-year-olds are doing this and think that this is totally normal. <laughs> that's it. Well, you've normalized it. And that's, that's what's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about um, your your teenagers now. Were they ever picky eaters? And um, if you ever did have a picky eater, what advice can you give to parents out there about this subject? This is such a hot topic uh, today with the way we're feeding our kids. Um, it happens pretty frequently. Well, let me let me say one thing first before we dive into because uh, we definitely have some picky eaters. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a problem that we've created. So, and we, we stick kids in high chairs that are hungry and try to. This is what we did. We stick kids in high chairs that are hungry, and we're supposed to feed them creamed spinach, and they're sitting there screaming and gagging and throwing it back, and we're forcing it down, thinking there's something normal about this situation. And it's not, we're, we're, we're teaching them to not trust their instincts and to take the stuff out of the jar or the stuff that they saw the commercial about and that, and, and to like literally override all these evolutionary instincts about what they should be eating. Now we didn't raise our kids with organ meats. I wish we had, but I've talked to so many people that do and aren't experiencing that same spitting up of the cream spinach, right? The, you know, the, this oxalate bomb coming out of their mouths. So I, I do think the fact that we, and we do, we, our, our son, our oldest daughter, Brianna, is a picky eater. Mm -hmm. Our son, who's in the middle, will eat anything partially to gross his sisters out. Mm -hmm. And, but I will say with Brianna, her brain, like she, she wants, she was one of the first people to drink the blood milk, not because she wanted, thought she wanted to taste it, because she wanted the experience of tasting it because her brain overrides. <laughs> so she, and then Alyssa's fairly picky mm -hmm. with things right mm -hmm. so uh the first thing I, the first thing i like to say is i think we've created that situation and we're fighting a losing battle i mean we are fighting not only all the advertising and all the marketing with the billions of dollars that are doing that to our kids but on top of it we're fighting all the people in the lab coats that are sitting there with test tubes playing on all our evolutionary you know buttons to try to get us to eat as much you know more and more and more of these certain foods so it's real i understand why it's a hot topic because it's really hard my answer would be the contextualizing part. We've been very, very lucky. I know not, not everybody can you know, drink blood in, in, in Kenya, but I do think whatever contextualizing we can do can certainly help. 
you know, setting the stage, what would you say? I think we've always had them try it. And that was just always the thing that they, they had to at least try it. Cause what do they say that you have to try something 50 times or something before you actually like it? I don't know. If that's yeah. It's true. a minimum. Of, so research research shows you have to taste something a minimum of 15 to 20 times before you accept it. Mm. So that's, it's a lot. That is a lot of time. And um, we've just always, you know, we never had the kids sit at the table till they finished it. And I think that's something that's definitely different culturally from when we were mm. being raised to with raising kids, just that idea, you know, of portion control or overeating or, you know, not, I think if anything, we're more hypersensitive about any type of eating disorder, what that might then um, produce in the kids. But at least if they always gave it a true try. And you know what, when somebody else makes it and you saw that person who made it, there's a heck of a lot different when you try it because you know, then there's that kind of an insult back to that, to the chef. So if it's your brother or sister who made it or your mother, or your father, well, I don't cook that much. He cooks and the kids cook. Um, I clean up really, really well, but I think the kids have that pressure too of wanting to, you know, satisfy whoever the chef is. And that's very different if you're pulling something out of a package now, clearly there's probably not as many nutrients in it anyway that you don't necessarily want them to be eating it. But I do think that does make a difference because contextually they want to try it. And you know what else? I think this is really important. And so this is a battle we've been fighting. As soon as we realized that there was this whole world of food, nutrition, and health that we knew nothing about and did everything we could to learn about it, we had already ingrained in our kids. I mean, they were, they, they were eating mac and cheese, right? Kraft mac and cheese. And we tried to do a 180. And one of the things that we did do, and I think we did it very successfully, and is literally the core of our business now is, look, we'll go to Kenya and drink blood, try the blood, yes. But we're not trying to have the kids drink blood every day. What we realize is we have a modern American family with teenagers that have a lot of pressures from them. They're hitting them as soon as they wake up in the morning to when they go to bed at night. And they have different expectations of taste and flavor and convenience and all of this. And what we've decided to do, the route we took was, all right, let's take the foods that they enjoy, common foods, and make them as nourishing as they can be. And the reality is, if you do that right, not only do you start checking the nutritional boxes, but if you do that right, the food is satiating. The food is delicious. Look, we built a wood-fired oven in the backyard, I don't know, 12 years ago, right? Yeah. Or so. Least, yeah. So we built this wood-fired oven because I wanted I, – I was at a time I was learning, really learning how to make sourdough bread, and I wanted to make all the bread for the family, and I realized we outgrew the oven in the house quickly for a family of five. But then I realized it's made pizzas. Listen, <laughs> we're never going to order a pizza again. And I said, we're never going to order a pizza never. again ever. And we're going to make pizzas from scratch here. And we did. I think we ordered one pizza in the past 12 years to the house and we eat pizza. And I said, I'm going to make it all from scratch. And I learned all how to make it all from scratch. And let me tell you what, my kids would not eat my pizza for almost <laughs> oh, four no. years. Like, I mean, four years. My son would not eat. cheese. We drove to Pennsylvania to get the raw milk. He made the cheese. You know yeah. what? Now that is literally one of the backbones of our business now. And we, he makes pizza. We, we make all of it from scratch. We make all the cheese. We make all the pepperoni. Which, heck, today we just made the mortadella for the special pizza. We make all of it. There's no two ingredients put together by anybody outside of these walls. You come in and get a wood-fired pizza at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. It's all made in-house from local ingredients. And, but we learned how to do it. And that's the, the, there's, there's sort of that, that hierarchy of steps like, okay, well, you learn how to make something. 
And it's a great knowledge bomb. Like you, you know more about your food than ever because you now know what goes into it. But you might be the only person in the house eating it because you really don't know all the intricacies of how to how to compete with what's happening in the grocery stores, right? And then you slowly build on that and you get to the point. And, I'm, and anybody who's really starting to make their food from scratch in their house, please listen. There is hope. I promise once you learn how to do it, you will make any food that you like, you can make better in your house than you can buy from anybody, from anybody. And if it's something you can't make in your kitchen, then you should question whether or not it's something you should be eating, right? So these are, I mean, I'm, I don't care what the food is, you can make it in your house and you, you can make it better than you could ever buy it. And so, now we're at the point with the kids where we'll go out to eat. And for a family of five, it's expensive, right? And they'll see the bill and they understand and they're like, oh, that wasn't worth it. Like that was, you know, we could have gotten half a pig and made how much out of it. And, you know, that could have had just bacon alone for, for, you know, a Sunday brunch for how long. So it actually has been very interesting to see their perception of um, quality too, of sometimes meals out. Like it's, it's, yes, the convenience is wonderful and it's really nice not to have to do dishes and clean up and everything. But when you look at, do you feel better? when you get up from the table than when you sat down. And I think that's been a big judge for us as a family. You know, if pants are a little tighter and everything just doesn't sit right, then it wasn't necessarily worth it. So then then they help out with the cooking too, which is good. Corey, do we have time for that other one or should we move on and talk about the modern Stone Age kitchen? Um, I think we should give, we should just move on. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, so your oldest daughter is Brianna. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she started this sourdough business during lockdowns during COVID. Yes. Beginning of COVID. So at the Eastern shore food lab up here, Bill was a professor at Washington college and founded and direct the Eastern shore food lab. And the college clearly was shut down and it was, well, what can we do with this kitchen? And we saw what was going out into the local community, just pretty much white wonder bread. And he said, you know, Brianna, I think they were still shut down with school or, you know, just starting online. And she was a 10th grader at that point in time. He was like, let's come up and make sourdough. So you guys made like... We ate eight loaves a week, a week for the community. Yeah. And gave it out to the social action committee. And it's actually, you know, funny, it's two years ago, right about now. Um, and then on, she kind of took a liking to it. And she said, well, because before the food lab was built, we have kind of retrofitted a commercial kitchen down our basement. So when restaurants have gone out of business, things like that, you know, Facebook marketplace, we've bought pieces. So we pretty much have a a whole commercial kitchen down our basement. And she's like, can I like bake this stuff down the basement and like start a business? Sure. Why not? You know? So on Easter Sunday of 2020, she made up a little sample basket and gave it out to neighbors. So it had a piece of focaccia, all sourdough, piece of focaccia, a piece of sourdough bread and these charcoal crackers and gave it out. And I think we had like 18 orders the first week or something just in the neighborhood. And it was delivery then because everybody was, you know, in the house, it was like complete lockdown. And we, the first, you know, crackers, we were doing it, the pasta attachment on the KitchenAid mixer, like rolling it on the It's so funny to think how things have changed. And it really took off so much so that like her and I, we would roll up um, crackers on Wednesday night after work. So I was the supervisor of special education in a local County. So, um, it was a very stressful job, especially with lockdown, making sure everybody was getting their free and appropriate public education. And then we'd be baking at night and you were baking sourdough with her then out of the wood fired oven. And then on Saturday we started doing deliveries because it was, how are we going to get the food to people? 
She had just gotten her permit. So this girl got so many hours of driving under her belt. But it got to the point on Saturdays, we were gone for eight hours doing deliveries. It was crazy. So And it was perfect for them because nobody was leaving their house. Yeah. And, and they were getting... But it was very strange because we had these people who ordered from us every single week. And we had no idea who they were. They wouldn't know them if, well, we weren't running into them at the store then because everybody was still at home. But yeah. it was very, very strange. And then Bill's book sold, Eat Like a Human, um, in June. And this really took off. And Brianna was like, well, why aren't we doing this? Because we've always talked about having a family business. And I kind of knew what my future in education was going to look like in terms of still dealing with um, the pandemic. And so I resigned July 1 of 2020 to focus on the food side knowing that the book was coming out to be able to give attention to that and just kind of kept growing. And then we were able to get into um, a building here, the Eastern Shore Food Lab building and get space. And we rebranded um, into the Modern Stone Age Kitchen because we're more than just the sourdough. So Rise by Brianna, Rise will always be our sourdough line. Um, that will always be her little baby, literally on our sourdough loaves. She has always put a heart. So we have a heart on all our sourdough loaves that's the trademark and then we do a lot more now so we're taking you know the the passes we've talked about into the modern and trying to make food as healthy and nourishing as possible so if you walk through our doors you know our top seller definitely is our, our wood-fired pizzas and we only do those on friday nights because it takes us all week to make them mm -hmm. and i think that's part of it our customers are realizing partially there's frustration it's like well why can't i get a pizza tonight or can i just you know don't you have one extra crust well, no we don't because it's three days to make that sourdough crust and we get 32 gallons of milk in on Tuesday because then we have to make cheese, you know, for all the pizza. And we just, Cisco is not pulling up and dropping it off. Mm -hmm. It's not any you know situation like that. Um, but it's been really empowering and rewarding. And then we also do classes. So we kind of have the model of if you want to buy the food, great, we have it for you and come on in and here it is. If you want to learn how to do it, excellent too. You can come and take a class and then learn to do it yourself. Um, we've got online classes. If you can't make it in here, you know, you can take an online one, you can read the book. So we try to hit people where they are, you know, with where they are for their families and try to be transparent too in our journey that it's been a process. And the other big piece of it, Bill left the college July of this last year. So this is now full time for us as a family. Wow. And it's something that we're really, you know, invested in. It's how we raise our kids and how we live. And it's full time, like literally. And a lot we get of to work time together. together. Oh. And we have weed now. And we have a liquor license. So that question he answered all those years it's ago. All a big we actually have look at that. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Yeah, it is. Sometimes it's nice to do these talks like this because you realize, you know, how things do come full circle and all it ties together. And what I love more than anything, and I'll get, you know, sad just thinking about it, but it's a family affair. You walk in these doors, especially on Friday night and Saturday, are all five of us are here. You see us all. So it's it's not just lip service, but you know, Brianna's going to college in the fall and it's gonna change. We've so we been very this. lucky. When I went on sabbatical, the entire family we moved to Ireland for the year and lived in this little tiny cottage on the farm in Dublin. It was amazing and, and it, we were we were stuck together in a beautiful way. And I'm like, this is the last chance our family's going to have to like spend this much time together. And then for all the horrors of the pandemic, the pandemic, we were stuck together again. It was like another gift of the family being together. And I think the third gift is us starting this business because, you know, the kids are growing and they're, Brandon's got her license. Billy's getting his license next month and they're all different places, but it, it, it push, puts us all back in the same place again 
on such a regular basis that right before Brianna leaves, we're very excited about that. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful about that. I'm not getting as happy as you, but I know. I agree that that was one of the benefits of the pandemic for sure. Just bringing families closer together, I guess Mm -hmm. the um, immediate families. Yeah. For sure. Oh, okay. Um, That was really sweet, you guys. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like processing that, that mushiness. But it's really interesting, and I and if this message lands with anyone out there, that you know we took a hell of a jump, like a huge, huge risk these last two years. And our 16-year-old daughter is the one who encouraged us and told us, you know, it was possible. And then we, you know, we got the feedback from the community these these deliveries and things that we were doing. But I don't. I think that's all something else the pandemic has taught us. Like, what else are you waiting for? If you are not happy in what you're doing take a jump. What's the worst truly that can happen? It's just, I know there's a lot of things that can happen. I know up at night financially running numbers through and because I do the money in the house. So that wasn't a concern, you know, on, on his, his was more, where are we going to source all these ingredients from? And I'm just like crunching numbers, like, oh my God, three kids in college. And like, what are we going to do? And it's just, we'll figure it out if we're doing what we believe in. And I really do feel that when you have that energy and that positive energy, it breeds more positive energy from people and like-minded people um, that you surround yourself with. It's been, it's been a journey, but it's been very team? positive. How big's your team? We have 10 people now? We've been in here physically in this space as the Modern Stone Age Kitchen since, since, July. June, since July, and we have a team of 10 now. Amazing people. Wow. That are devoted, that understand that, you know, live this way as well and want to learn and, you know, take the food. And that's our big thing. Like if we can't be in here making this food and you're not taking it home to your families as well, like you need to nourish your families too. So it's been, and that's exciting, you know, to be in that positive space with people when you're saying that you are making, you know, impactful change. So if anybody wants to come visit us. I was going to say, I I cannot wait. I'm definitely going to have to make a visit up there. Yeah. We'll be out your way in, Sort of July? your way, July, July. Down in, in Texas? Austin, in Austin for KetoCon. Oh, yeah. I've never Judy been will be there as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. She usually goes there. Um, I've never been to KetoCon. Are you are you a speaker or are you just going mm-hmm. to the conference? Oh, my I'm God. I'm speaking and doing a workshop. Okay. What are you doing a workshop on? On uh, ancient technology, stone tool technology. And we're going to go, we're going to go through the different, how to make the different stone tools from different time periods and how the diets changed in turn. Oh, very Ooh, that cool. Sounds cool. Yeah. All right. I'll have to see if I can make an effort to go to KetoCon. <laughs> and I'm going to drive over that terrifying bridge out to the Eastern shore to visit you guys. Um, okay. So I have, I have one more question. I know this is not actually on the list, so you're not prepared. Woohoo, it's like a okay. This is, this is like a pop quiz. <laughs> um, all right. So our main the main people who listen to our um show are moms, obviously. And um I'm curious if you both or collectively, I guess the two of you, um what would you say to moms who are, you know, just like trying to get by and doing the best that they can with their kids, but they, but they want to do 
they they want to try and nourish them as best as they can. How would you, what would you say would be like the best first step or um, you know where to jump in, especially if they're like not this is not something they've grown up with. This is not normal in their house. Number one, and this is not as much food related. It's you, you got to get rid of any guilt you have. You know, any any step that you take is a step in the in the positive in, in a positive direction. Period. I mean, and and just hang your hat on that and say this this is great because you know it's been twenty something years for us to get to the place that we are now, and the first five of it is you know mac and cheese and peeps and whatever. Um, so that's number one. Number two, as far as like, as I would say for steps is the first thing I would do, especially with kids is get rid of any industrial nut and seed oil, get it out of my house, period. All of it, every, all of it out of the house, um, especially for growing bodies and growing brains, they need high quality animal fat. Um, and I really, the, the stances that we have here, like we, we, use, uh, we have a stance here against industrial nut and seed oils, uh, we use no refined sugars. Um, fermentation is at the core of what we do in nose and tail approach. I know some of this is is, is more esoteric and hard to, to nail down, but I think the nut and seed oils would be the first place I would start. I think the first place is don't buy it. First of all, give yourself grace because you're just trying to, f- and if your kids are happy at the end of the night going to bed, just be thankful. Let your kitchen floor get dirty. I swear to God, I scrub my kitchen floor way too freaking much. Hmm. Keep your <laughs> dirty nobody cares nobody is looking at your grout it does not matter at all like i i think i do i I appreciate that i sweep my kitchen floor probably like 10 times a day i'm not even exaggerating it's so dirty i'm up at every night too (laughs) oh my god you oh see yeah i did that no don't it's just (laughs) take that time back for yourself Mm. just truly just truly but um and then the other thing is just don't buy it. And I think that's part of it, getting back to how we were all raised, where you showed love by giving sweets and treats. And that was a sign of affection. That was the grandparently thing to do. Or if my kid you know, did something good, oh, they get a treat. Well, how do you change that conversation? And I think that's a big one. Um, because first of all, it's a financial cost then if, it's, if you're always rewarding with food. So can you reward with time? When you are not... Um, <laughs> you know, sweeping your floor or mopping your floor, then give the kids that time as the reward of you because there's no better gift than you as a sane, happy parent. And you got to let some things go. And I wish that I let my kitchen floor go. Looking back on things. Maybe I would have cooked more then. If I had you, you cooked more. I love you. But I I do. I just think it was so easy to give in going through the grocery store just because you felt like you were doing a favor. Like, oh yeah, I can get this for you. And it... Like a, a sign of love, and it's really not, and, and that's hard if to. If it's in the house, your, it'll get eaten. Absolutely, it'll get eaten. Yeah, and that's where we are. It, we just don't buy it. Now I know we've got kids driving, so they can stop. Um, but it does help when it's just not in the house, and it helps for us. It's not a temptation. And, and I, can I say one other thing? And I know our answers are probably much longer than you're expecting, so I apologize. But um, one last thing I would say too is trust your instincts, period. I mean, we are, every animal on this planet is biologically equipped with everything we need to decide what, what we should eat. Like we are. Now, humans have screwed it up because of advertising and marketing and force feeding cream spinach. You can tell I hate cream yeah, spinach. But, but, no, you know, but essentially, you know, that instinct that we have as humans about food, 
are real. And sometimes the information isn't there. It's not there when you necessarily need it. And you know what? Make a decision. Go with it, whether it's in the shopping cart or in the diner or that morning when you're making breakfast and go with it and then live with it. I mean, it's it's the best decision you could have made and, and don't have that guilt. It's the guilt, I'm telling you, that has plagued me and continues to plague me now. And I wish I could take my own advice. But we're doing the best that we can. We are doing the best that we can. Yeah. That is fabulous advice. I like that I have permission to not clean my kitchen floors. (laughs) Christina said. (laughs) Yeah. But but if you come to the modern Stone Age kitchen, our floor is mopped. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Hopefully there are no inspectors listening, right? Exactly. (laughs) Oh, man, you guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank Surely you for having pleasure. us on. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, this is wonderful. Um, so thanks for listening, guys. So before we leave, we want there's a I want to give a quick reminder that Corey has a recipe for unicorn soup on her blog, which is new for nutrientsake.com. Check it out if you want to learn how to turn unicorns into soup. Oh, gross. And- <laughs> Bill and Christina are intrigued now. Now they're going to go to your blog and check it out. I'm pretty sure that's Um, in Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And don't forget to review us on iTunes. And then before we leave, Bill and Christina, can you let us know where our listeners can find you? Absolutely. So you can get our Modern Stone Age Kitchen at Modern Stone Age Kitchen is our Instagram handle and modernstoneagekitchen.com. And we are shipping our non-refrigerated items. So if you'd like any of our, any of our sourdough products, our, our homemade peanut butter, cricket bombs. cricket bombs are very, very popular. Our cricket protein bombs, um, our, our Nick snacks, which is our Tomalized corn snacks. You can get those all at modernstoneagekitchen.com. And, and you. you can find me at, at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler on social media and then uh, eatlikeahuman.com is where you can find out all information about our classes in person and virtual, all of the research that we're doing, our blog, that sort of thing. And his there. book, Eat Like a Human. Yes. yes. Okay. And the book, and, and the book. which also he actually does the audio recording of it. So if you'd like some of the stories you heard today, there's a lot more. And it's in his, he's reading them. So. Yeah. yeah, which is cool. Yeah. And come visit us. Absolutely. Yes. Um, all righty. Thank you guys so much. Christine, you want to send us off? I guess that's it. We're good. Yeah, that's it. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourishthelittles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at fornutrientsake and online at fornutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. 
It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.